If you're looking for the next best thing to invest in, try investing in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early, which could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. So invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Visit GoForward.com to learn more about how Forward can help you manage your long-term health risks for one flat monthly fee. That's GoForward.com. It's no secret that writing can be lonely work, but does it really have to be? Whether you're full-time, part-time, or just starting out, you'll get insights into the tricks, tips, and production habits of writers from every level of the biz. From best-selling authors to those launching their first novels, you're sure to be in the company of friends as we encourage great writers to divulge and share their secrets. This is the Great Writer Share Podcast with your host, best-selling author, Daniel Wilcox. Hello and welcome to episode number 73 of the Great Writer Share podcast, where every week we hijack an hour or so of time from some of the kindest and hardest working writers around today to join us on the show and discuss everything that makes them tick, raw and bounce. My name is Daniel Wilcox and today's date is the 31st of January and let's dive in with my personal update. So this week for me has been a lot of reorganising and reassessing and reevaluating. Um, essentially my workload and what kind of things I want to achieve with my writing and with the non-fiction services I'm currently offering for authors. Um, mostly all of that has come around because of the January lockdowns. When I say January, it's extending through till March, joy. But lockdown 3.0 in the UK, meaning that uh, I've essentially just had to step in and do a bunch of increased childcare, which obviously isn't an issue in that I know <laughs> I know my responsibilities as a father and I love my son um, but it has meant that I need to look at ways to make this more sustainable and look at basically what I'm working on and how I need to or what kind of space I've got available in order to juggle it all until this whole pandemic thing is over so I've done a lot of deep thinking I've done a lot of board scribbling I've done a lot of talking with friends about different things um, and yeah I think I'm starting to get into a uh, settled on an idea of a direction of where I want to be going over the next sort of weeks, months, years. Um, so there'll probably be some changes and things soon with my business, but it's it's all positive stuff. And I think it's it's often good just to take that time to revisit what you're currently working on, make sure that things are you know working as they should, delivering the things they need to. Um, because you have the the eighty twenty principle where eighty percent of your results come from twenty percent of your work. So what is it that I'm currently doing that? I don't necessarily need to be doing in order to be achieving the goals that I've got. So that's where I'm at. Um, in fiction news, I have shipped over the box set of When Winter Comes to an editor. So the whole manuscript um, has come in at about 140,000 words, which is going to be quite beasty for any editor to go through. Um, but I'm excited because the first six episodes are already live on Amazon. And I've explained how this is going to work on this show before, but it was essentially a test um, to see how well they perform, if they're you know worth kind of compiling and stuff, and and they're passing that test, which is awesome. They're being received well. I've got good reviews, so I'm going to be box setting that, putting that into some form of paperback and hardback, looking at the audiobook version of that. Um, but I just want to make it as clean as crisp as possible to make that final compilation sing. Uh, I've also been percolating on idea for a new novella. I've got a cover that I bought just off one of these um, uh, what's the word pre-made cover sites. I just fell in love with the art piece and I'm just percolating on the idea. I know roughly what kind of story I want to write. It's going to be a novella. 
but I just need to give it a little bit more thought before I put my fingers to the keyboard. But yeah, that's that's an exciting one for me to, to look forward to too. In non-fiction news, um, very, very simply, I restarted totally the productivity book I'm working on. Um, things just weren't clicking. There was a lot of um, trying to find the angle that I wanted to approach it with. Like I know, I know what I want the book to be, but at the same time, it just wasn't coming out that way. So I've had a bit of time to percolate. Um, I got a cover through for it, which is exciting. So that's you know ready to go for whenever the book uh, gets finished. But yeah, I literally scrapped everything and started from scratch. And I am happy to say that the the words are just flowing better, cleaner, easier. I'm much more excited for it. It's much more. It, it feels much more like a me book, which you know is important when you when you're trying to uh, get into the author journey. So yeah, that should be. I'll, I'll keep you guys um, up to date with the progress of that. But that's just an exciting exciting development for me. Today's guest I am presenting to you is the wonderful and immensely talented J D Barker. People might be familiar with J.D. Barker from the Writers Inc. podcast with uh, Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon, in which they interview some of the biggest hitters in in modern authordom today. It's it kind of blows my mind the guests they've had on that show. They've had James Patterson, they've had Seth Godin, um, just a wealth of people who are just you know up there at the top of their craft. And J.D. you know he's he's one of those. He's he's a legend in his own right. And I was very very excited to sit down and have the chance to talk to him. And we cover lots of different things uh, in this interview. We talk about JD's journey in getting involved in fiction in the first place, taking that leap and what that looked like for him, how he hounded down Stephen King to try and get a, well, to get permission to use one of Stephen King's properties within his book. Um, he talks about working with James Patterson on his most recent novel, Coast to Coast Murders, working with uh, Dacre Stoker, which is one of the direct descendants of Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula. All this stuff we cover in this interview and, and much more, um, particularly when we go into sort of mindset about how JD thinks and how he grabs opportunities and manages to keep getting himself into these positions. It's really, really enlightening and uh, there's a lot that you'll enjoy, I'm sure. We have no new patrons this week, but for anyone who wants to get more from the show, including early access to episodes, entry into our Slack group, and just a whole host of extra bonus goodies, then head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash greatwritershare, and you can get started for as little as $1 a month. And now, without any further ado, we'll dive into the interview with the one and the only Mr. J.D. Barker. J.D. Barker is an international best-selling American author whose work has been broadly described as suspense thrillers, often incorporating elements of horror, crime, mystery, science fiction, and the supernatural. His work has been revered by the likes of Stephen King, Josh Malaman, Tosca Lee, and many more, and his career has seen collaborations on a number of projects, including writing the official sequel to Bram Stoker's Dracula with Stoker's great-grandnephew, Dacca Stoker, and his most recent novel, Coast to Coast Murders, with none other than James Patterson. J.D., welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. No, I am. Uh, I am very excited to have you. We were just saying a little bit before uh, we, we we started recording. Obviously, you're one of the co-hosts of the Writers Inc. podcast, along with former guests of the show uh, Jay Thorne and uh, Zach Bohannon, who I haven't quite gotten onto the show yet, but I'm planning to at some point. Um, and I kind of just wanted to start uh, this line of questioning, I guess, by saying, "What's Jay like to work with?" Oh, what's Jay like? <laughs> what's Jay like to work with? Because oh, we're, we're very familiar of... with uh, with Jay. But what's he actually like to work with? He's, he's a pain in the ass. You yeah. don't want any part of. No, he's actually a really nice guy, and it's funny because he he found me at um, the horror writers convention, um, and he he kind of cornered me, and I I didn't know who he was, um, and he asked me if I would be interested in, in working on a podcast with him, and I I started researching him a little bit after that, and realized just how many podcasts this guy has worked on. 
um, and you know, talk to some of the people that knew him. I mean, he's extremely generous with his time. Um, very, very knowledgeable. Um, a great interviewer because I, I, I like talking to me is like wrangling the cats for the most part. <laughs> And he's pretty good at keeping me, you know, at least talking about one particular topic, you know, pretty, pretty close anyway. Uh, but, he, but he's great at that kind of thing. And, and I've honestly, I've tried to fluster him. I've thrown some really big names in front of him. I, you know, I gave him James Patterson almost from the get-go. Yeah. Um, we just had Lisa Gardner on a couple of days ago. Um, he doesn't get flustered. Um, you know, he just, he just keeps going and he, he asks the, the tough questions. And, and, you know, it's funny because he's getting really good at pulling information out of some of these people because our audiences are very similar. We've got people that are at the beginning journeys of their, their writing career. And, you know, when they talk to her, they hear from somebody like James Patterson, they don't necessarily want to know what he's up to today. They want to know what he was doing, you know, back when he first started. Um, and, you know, I honestly do too. I mean, like I've, I've talked to like Dan Brown and, you know, like he wrote Da Vinci Code, I think sitting next to the washer and dryer, you know, like <laughs> those, those kind of conversations to me are fascinating. Um, just to hear, you know, like, cause that journey can just, it happens so quick and, and just to see how people got from that beginnings to where they are now. Um, you know, the, nobody's recreating the wheel here. Like you can, you know, if, if you pick through these stories, you know, you, you can, you can do it yourself. And, and honestly, perseverance seems to be the, the, the thing. I mean, as long as you, you put your butt in your chair and you write every day and you get better at it and get better at it, um, you know, and just keep working at it like anything else, the, the rest will follow. And how have you found jumping into a podcast? Because was it something that was on your radar or is it something that you're you're slowly growing into? And you're and because the, from what I understand it, the show itself, like you say, you've had some big guests on there already. And it's I've, I've listened to a bunch of the episodes and they're all very, very informative and very interesting. And it's clearly a new angle that hasn't quite been taken within the writing podcast sphere. Um, so how, how, how's your journey been going into that realm of podcast podcasting? I was honestly scared to death of it. Um, I I'm autistic, which we've, I've talked about on writers Inc before I've got an, a form of autism called Asperger's. Um, and it, you know, social, socially, I'm a, a complete mess. Um, it's very difficult for me to sit down and talk to people. Um, making eye contact is a problem. And when, when you, when you've got Asperger's or autism in general, um, like I can't follow a conversation at, if I make eye contact. And th this may seem weird because it's the opposite of what, what most people expect. So for me to actually absorb a conversation, I have to look off to the side or sometimes my eyes are kind of darting all over the place. But um, if I force my eyes to actually make eye contact, I can't follow the conversation. Um, so it, it's a very goofy thing. So like having a podcast has allowed me to basically get in front of a crowd. It's forced me to do it every single week and talk. You know, do the, the one thing that I'm, I'm terrified of, um, which is why I agreed to do it. Like I the, having something out there that I'm scared of, it, it bothers me. Like, I, I don't like that. Like, I've jumped out of airplanes. I've been shot at. I've been stabbed. You know, like, I, I there's a lot of things that have happened in my life that should be scary. And, like, I've gotten them behind me. They've happened and I've moved on. But, like, talking to people is still one of the most frightening things I think I've, I've ever had to endure. But doing it week after week has definitely, you know, helped me improve my game. And, it, you know, I, as an author, you know, like, I think we're all introverts. You know, this just makes me, you know, in, introvert you know, 2.0, I guess. Um but, you know, we have to get out of our office every once in a while. You know, like now I do a lot of author talks and appearances or I did before the you know the apocalypse started. Um, I'm hoping to get back to it when the, this is all over. And I'm hoping I'm, I'm going to be better at it. What one of the uh, what's some of the bigger takeaways that you've taken from actually being on the other side of a microphone? Is there anything that surprised you about podcasting? Um, I say the word, um, which I just did again, <laughs> are far too often. So if anybody is at home playing the drinking game, if you drink whenever I say, um, um, you're going to be in for a good night. 
uh, I, you know, honestly, just I, I try to talk a little bit slower. You know, my, my brain tends to go pretty fast sometimes. And when I get excited about a topic and I'm always excited about writing, um, you know, I just tend to go faster and faster and faster and faster. And it's, it's funny because we've gotten a lot of emails from people that listen to podcasts at, you know, two times speed or three times speed. Kind of like yeah, I think we've got one of the few where people have to actually slow it down a little bit. <laughs> follow along but um i'm trying to work on that too because i teach a lot of classes and you know if i obviously talk this fast then you know it's a little it makes it difficult to take notes so Mm. you know it 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 gives you the opportunity to question you know what you're doing i've I've got a lot of friends that are are actors you know and and they watch tape you know they watch their performances and they tweak every little thing and and this to me is is the same thing you know I, i listen back to the episodes i i critique myself i'm probably my harshest critic um try and figure out what i'm doing wrong and hopefully make it better for the next time and you mentioned earlier about one of the uh, advantages of sort of interviewing other people and going down that route of uh, questioning is that you get to see people's journeys and they're always fascinating seeing where people came from in the beginning. So with that, do you want to give my audience a little overview on where you began your writing journey and how you've gotten to the position that you're in now? Yeah, I, I kind of stumbled into it. Um, you know, my, my parents forced me to go to college. You know, every parent wants their kid to get a degree. Um, but I, I, I love the arts. I mean, I, I've always been into you know music. I've been into writing. You know, I, I grew up without a television in my house. So like we spent a lot of time at the libraries and reading. Um, so when I went off to college, I, I went to the Art Institute in Fort Lauderdale, but I, I, I my major was business. Um, and one of my first jobs that I had down there, I worked for RCA Records in their promotions department. Um, and I was in the Miami, Fort Lauderdale area. And basically what that meant is I, I was a glorified babysitter. So they would have a recording artist come into that that area in you know, South Florida, and I would have to pick them up at the airport, get them to the radio station for their interview, get them to their hotel, get them to their concert on time, um, and hopefully get everybody back on, on the airplane when it was time for them to go. Um, and to really date myself, this was people like Tiffany and Debbie Gibson, new kids on the block. Um, then we had the hair bands. We had Motley Crue and Poison and, and those kind of guys. If I got everybody from Guns N' Roses back on their airplane, you know, after a week in Fort Lauderdale, Miami, without anybody getting lost or getting arrested, that was a win for me. Amazing. Um, but, you know, it, it was fun. But, you know, at the same time, I was accruing, accruing all this student loan debt, you know, because I was in school. And I, I realized, you know, I've got some famous people that are trapped in a car with me for days at a time. Um, so I started to interview them. Um, and I, I wrote up those interviews. And one of the first ones was Madonna. Um, and I turned around and I, I sold those interviews to newspapers and magazines. And I would just rehash the same conversation. You know, it's the same five questions over and over again. I would just kind of you know, re- redo it and, and put it out there. Um, but then I, I really started to get into their heads. And when you start working in the newspaper and magazine world, um, people start to come to you if you're good at um, grammatical things. Like I was great with punctuation and just, you know, the general rules of grammar. Um, and I never studied it before. It's just because I read so much. And I just picked up, you know, the sentence structure and, and those kind of things just from seeing it on the page. Um, but people, you know, in that world, everybody seems to be working on a novel, you know, like my editor on that, uh, one of the magazines, you know, like he opened his desk drawer one day and he's like, you know, I've been working on this for a while. Um, but I think it needs some work and you just kind of take a look at it. Um, turned out the novel was like 500,000 words. He'd been writing it for like seven years, um, no ending in sight. Um, but I kind of fell into a career doing what's called, uh, being a book doctor. Um, where people would give me these types of projects and I would reevaluate them and I would tell them specifically what was wrong, you know, what wasn't working, what was working and kind of point them in a direction um, along with fixing grammar and punctuation and all these other fun things. Um, and I, I did this while I was basically working in the corporate world. So I, I finished up you know, college. I ended up getting a degree in, in business. Um, my last real job that I had, I was a chief compliance officer for a brokerage firm. 
um, which is as horrible as it sounds, but it pays really well. Um, so I kind of got stuck in that and I, you know, I, I hated the job, but you know, I would come home and I, I would work on the, the writing world, you know, basically these, these book doctor projects. Um, and I did this for 20 some years. And over that time frame, I ended up with six different books that hit the New York Times bestseller list. Um, but all with other people's names on the cover. You know, that, that gets old after a while <laughs> you know, when, you, when you see that. Um, so my wife on the, the sixth one hit and she pulled me aside and she's like, listen, I know you want to write full time. I know you hate your job. Let's figure out a way to make this work. Um, and it was a tricky thing because I, I had been working this job for, for 20 years. You know, so we had all the trappings of that particular career. I had a, a very nice salary. I had bonuses. I had you know, pe- you know pension, retirement. Um, we had a big old house in Florida. We had cars. We had a boat. Um, our, our monthly nut was somewhere around $10,000. So just to, to cover just the, the bills, mortgages and all that other fun stuff, roughly $10,000 a month. So it wasn't something you could just walk away from. Um, so she came up with this crazy idea. She said, well, let's sell everything that we own, buy a duplex uh, in Pittsburgh because she had family in Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania. Um, we'll rent one side out, live in the other side and then you know get our expenses down as low as possible. You know, so you can walk away from that job. Um, and we, we did that. You know, so we, it took us about a year to sell everything off. We found a duplex. We moved into the one side. And, and I remember, you know, the day we got our first tenant, tenant and I, I quit that day job. She showed me our bank statement and she said, OK, looks like we've got about 18 months for you to know, make this work. Go, <laughs> you know, so it literally put my, my feet to the fire. Um, and I, I wrote my first book uh, called Forsaken, um, which was a, a horror novel. Um and uh, I, I shopped it. And at, at first, I, I thought it was kind of a given. I didn't think I was going to have any problems getting an agent or a publisher because I, I knew all these people. Um, so I sent out a, a, a query letter and I, I did what you're not supposed to do. I sent out a form letter, um, literally to whom it may concern. I didn't personalize any of them. I didn't look to see what agents wanted. You know, so if they say they want to see the first chapter or they want the first you know, 90 pages or whatever, I, I didn't look at any of that. I sent everybody the exact same thing. Um, and I, and I got a handful of responses back, but I think I sent out like 200 of them and, you know, hardly got anything back, um, which was a big no, no. So the book itself, I figured, you know, it, it shouldn't be a difficult sell because it, in the story, I had to explain where the wife buys a journal. And just to get the book done, I wrote that she walked into needful things, you know, Stephen King's store and bought it there. And I fully expected to have to change that. Um, but my wife, you know, again, way smarter than me. She said, well, why don't you just try and get King's permission to use that? Um, so luckily I did, I, I reached out, um, and through a friend, a personal friend, um, I was able to email it to him and he read the story and emailed me back and told me I could use that reference. So again, I, I didn't think it was going to be difficult to get an agent, but you've got Stephen King's blessing to use something like that. I figured how hard could it be? Um, but the offers that I got, they were really small. I think one of them was like a $5,000 advance and it was through a small press and, you know, none of the agents that wanted the book, you know, were really people that I wanted to work with. Um, so I made a decision to go ahead and, and self-publish it. Um, but I, 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 I wanted to make sure if I did that, that I, I put it out on par with something coming out of the top publishers. I, I didn't want to just, you know, hit the publish button on Amazon and, and hope for the best. I wanted to make sure that the book came out and was as good as something coming out of Random House. Um, so I hired professionals across the board, editors, cover designers. Um, the book ended up coming out in November of 2014 as a hardcover, um, softcover, audiobook, uh, ebook, all these different things. Um, I formed my own company in order to put it out because I didn't want the reviewers to realize that it was just a person. I wanted them to see a company behind it, um, which, you know, tricked a lot of reviewers into actually getting, you know, reviews out there. So like New York Times and things like that. Um, and the book came out, it did okay. Uh, Publishers Weekly 
ultimately got wind of um, how I got Stephen King's permission to use his characters in there. And they ran a story about that. And that's what really lit the fire, I think, under that novel, because it ended up selling about a quarter million copies after that. Um, while that was going on, I was writing my second book, which is called The Fourth Monkey, um, a serial killer uh, novel set in, in Chicago. Um, and, you know, when you sell a quarter million copies of a self-published title, you know, you, the economics of that are pretty good. Um, so I fully intended to self-publish that that second book. Um, my wife looked at it and she said, well, just, you know, let's try and get an agent and see what happens with that first. You know, you don't have to try too hard, but, you know, you never know. Um, so I, I sent it out to 53 agents that time. Um, I queried uh, 53, just kind of fine-tuned my list a little bit. And I had uh, about a dozen offers of representation within the first couple of weeks, um, which was kind of crazy. Um, so I, I used a website called, and I'm just putting some of this information out there just so your, your listeners can can use it. Um, there's a website called Publishers Marketplace. So if you ever find yourself in a position where you've got to pick an agent because you've got more than one that's trying to sign you, if you use Publishers Marketplace, you can research the agents. So you can actually see their stats. You can find out you know what types of deals they're getting, who their clients are, but you can see what they're actually selling books for. Because there's, there's a lot of shysters out there. There's people that will create a website and say, hey, I'm an agent today. <laughs> you know, they've got no history behind them and you've got no way to, to, to really you know determine whether they're any good or not. So Publishers Marketplace is a great way to, to research that. Um, but I ended up finding an agent, a woman named Kristen Nelson out in Colorado. Um, and she's, you know, I, I picked her because she had a very small stable of authors, but they were all New York Times bestsellers and they had all started with her, which means she got them there. Um, and all of her deals were five and six and seven figure deals. So she was getting, you know, very strong deals for her, her authors. Um, so she got the book, uh, she sent it out to publishers and, you know, I, I just kind of started working on the next one. I mean, that's kind of what you need to do in this world. You got to, you know, once it's off your desk, just move on and, and start the next project. But I started writing the next book and I was out on a run. I, I run about five miles a day. Um, and I got a phone call from her and she said, are, are you sitting down? And I said, no, I'm, I'm running. Um, she said, well, we just got a preemptive offer on your book out of the UK, your neck of the woods, um, for, hey. for six, six figures. It worked out to, I think it was about $160,000 US uh, from HarperCollins out there. Um, so I got all excited. I ran home. I told my wife and I said, we're going out to dinner. Uh, we're going to celebrate. So we hopped in the car. By the time we got to the restaurant, I think the numbers were somewhere around 400,000. Uh, by the time we finished dinner, we had broken 800,000. Um, by the time everything was said and done, we had a TV show, a movie, and we had broken seven figures on this on this book. So life changing money. Um, <laughs> so I I grabbed it, um, you know, walked away completely from the corporate world at that point, And you know, I've been writing full time ever since. I have so many questions. Um, I'm trying to think where to start now. So let, let, let's jump back a little bit, because you saying about obviously uh, downgrading, selling everything and just making this dramatic move over to to Pittsburgh. Um at that point, how confident were you that this was going to be a, a true next step to you? Oh, I was scared to death. <laughs> I, I thought we were going to completely fall on our faces and, um, you know, it, it wasn't going to work. And, and part of the problem was that the corporate job that I had, you know, being a chief compliance officer at a brokerage firm, I had licenses. And the minute you hit the quit button, you know, there's a ticking clock on those. They, they expire two years after you, your last job. Yeah, unless, unless you're working in that profession, they, they don't auto renew. Um, so I knew I had a two year window. And if I didn't, you know, do something within that two year window, I had to get another job in that world and, and get those licenses somewhere. Otherwise, they would all be gone. And that's, you know, years worth of work that would have been out the window. Um, along with the potential paychecks that I could get. So um, I, I think in a lot of ways, every author kind of needs to do this. You know, 
like it. If you read, you know, on writing by Stephen King is, is what I consider one of the Bibles in this world. Um, and he talks about the jobs that he had back in that, that time frame. And he worked at laundries, you know, like he worked some terrible jobs. And I think he did that intentionally because, you know, he wanted to hate that job. Like he wanted to make sure that it was as horrible as possible so that the writing thing just seemed like this glowing, incredible thing that could happen off in the distance. Um, I, I didn't do that. And I think I lost 20 some years because of that. I got comfortable in that corporate world doing what, you know, we're supposed to do. You know, I got a job with a big company. I got a nice salary. I got a house, you know, 2.4 kids, like all the, you know, things people tell you you're supposed to do. I went out there and did. And, you know, it's a lot tougher to walk away from. So the advice I tend to give writers is if you're younger and you're, you're at a point in your life where you can do that kind of thing, you know, do it while you, while, you know, before you line those those issues up, because once you get caught up in that, it's a lot more difficult to unwind. Um, that being said, I mean, it, it doesn't really matter what age you are. You know, you only get one life, you know, so if you're 40, if you're 50, if you're 60 and you want to be a writer and you're not because <laughs> you're doing something else, you know, there's a ticking clock there too. At, at some point you've got to, you know, pull that trigger and you've got to, you've got to try and make a go at it. Otherwise you're going to be sitting on that porch in your eighties, you know, rocking back and forth going, what if, you know, and, and nobody wants to be there. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a tried and true story um, just from a lot of people. And I think sometimes it's hard juggling the uh, inner knowledge that you know that you're going to be supported enough for enough time to risk that gamble because like you say you had sort of a window of when it had to work and then after that it was all just questions up in the air but I think a lot of people trying to get to that position sometimes struggle because sometimes you do need to put a bit of that time in but at the same time you don't want to pull back on what your dreams are I, it, it just seems like a I don't know just such a a hard place to get to in your head to be able to go okay this is this is the moment to commit to do it because I was, I was very similar when it came to um uh, the position where I, I went full-time as an author, it I hadn't planned it. It just got to a point in which I couldn't stand being in the job that I was in anymore. And because of certain circumstances, I just went, you know what, I'm going to take I'm going to take the risk. I've got enough to keep you going for X amount of time. I'm going to dive in. I'm going to take that step. And, and it was terrifying. But I also think that, as I'm sure you'll probably agree, that having that that fire behind you gives you no other option and you just get your blinkers on and go for it. And you you clearly pushed ahead and, you know, made all these steps you decided in 2014 to self-publish a book which obviously six seven years ago seven years ago now was quite a risky maneuver to make because self-publishing even then was still maturing and very much wasn't in in the stages that it was now and you seem to do well with it and then over time you went into getting agents and it seems from what you're saying that you've always been very very um strategic with what you're doing and you seem to soak up a lot of information and you're very good at finding and taking the right opportunities that will give you that next step. Is that something that you've always had or is that something that you sort of cultivated over time to to get you to the position where you are? I've always been very business minded. And I think a lot of it comes from the, the Asperger's thing. Um, you know, I tend to set goals that are, are pretty lofty. And when I hit them, I, I don't celebrate those goals. I tend to look at, well, what can I do you know, to improve on it? So like I, my, my last book hit number two on the New York Times bestseller list. And, and my agent was dreading that phone call to me because she's, you know, she knew that as soon as she said, well, you're number two, that, you know, first thought in my head is going to be, well, what do I need to do to become number one? Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I and, and that's a personal issue with me. Like I just, I always try to figure out how to, how to, you know, do one better. Um, you know, when it comes to this, you know, like I've had a ton of stories written about me where they call me like this instant success. 
Um, but it, it's really not true because I've got 20 some years behind me. Like that's the, the time frame that you're talking about. Like during like, if I would have pulled the trigger on a novel back then, I probably wouldn't have seen the success that I've got now. Like I, I figured out what I'm doing over that, that 20 some years. I mean, I, I worked with so many agents and so many editors that, you know, they pulled the curtain back, you know, editors would hire me as a book doctor. They would acquire a novel that needed work and they would pull the curtain back and say, well, we've been working with this author. I've tried to communicate. These things need to be fixed in it. They don't get it, but I know you've done this before and I need you to fix this book. And they would tell me specifically what they felt needed to be fixed in that novel in order for it to sell in, in big numbers. And that was information coming from the top five publishers. You know, so by the time I wrote, you know, sat down to write my own book, I knew exactly what agents wanted, what editors wanted, what the booksellers wanted, what the marketing people wanted. You know, I understood that entire world inside and out. And I'm not saying every author needs to. Every, everybody's journey is different. Um, but I think what every author does need to do is gleam as much information as possible and figure out what they can use and what they can't. You know, try to get the noise out the window and then grab onto those, those golden nuggets that, that are useful and, and somehow work them into their own career. If you're looking for the next best thing to invest in, try investing in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early, which could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. So invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Visit GoForward.com to learn more about how Forward can help you manage your long-term health risks for one flat monthly fee. That's GoForward.com. What's your relationship with imposter syndrome? Because you you seem to have no issue on the outside with again, taking these opportunities and just embracing them, like some of the, the opportunities you've had are, are huge. I mean, even jumping into the, the book doctoring to begin with, and then going on to writing a book with a Stoker descendant to working with James Patterson. They're all um, situations in which I'm kind of trying to put myself into them. And I, I feel like there'd certainly be a big level of trepidation in approaching that as a, as my next step. How, how have you found each opportunity as you've taken it? Well, I, I can tell you the imposter syndrome doesn't go away. Um, <laughs> we just interviewed Lisa Gardner on, on Writers Inc. And, you know, she's been at it. She just had her 30 year anniversary, number one New York Times bestseller with more novels than I can count. She said she sits down every day and still has no clue why people buy the books that they, you know, that she writes. You know, she doesn't, it, like that, that feeling doesn't, doesn't go away. Um, for me personally, like I, you know, I, I, I still feel it. Um, I definitely think by the time I wrote like the prequel to Dracula for the Stoker family, I was starting to get a little cocky, you know, because these, these projects were just being thrown at me. You know, like I, I wrote, you know, my first book and it sold so well, you know, Fourth Monkey sold, you know, ridiculously, you know, a TV show and movie and all that. And then Bram Stoker's family asked me to write a prequel to Dracula using Bram Stoker's notes. Like the, I, I, I tell people when they're standing next to me outside, not to stand too close because lightning is going to strike and try to even out some of this karma at some point. You don't want to be on my left when that happens. Um, but that, that makes you cocky, you know, when that kind of thing happens. And then, you know, when I got the phone call from Patterson to, to start working with him, um, you know, that, that, you know, I think it took me to another level of that. Uh, but then when I actually started writing with him, he, he took me completely back down. Um, he, 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 it was like being in school again. I mean, cause he, I, I would send him pages and he would call me up, you know, right after reading them and he would tell me absolutely everything that was wrong. <laughs> and he would completely pick it apart. And like, I would get off those phone calls and I felt like I had no clue what I was doing. Like I was afraid to write a shopping list after, after talking to him. Um, but the more he and I worked together, I realized he was right. 
You know, it's not that I didn't know what I was doing. I I was doing okay. Um, But, you know, like I I said at the beginning of this, I I never had any kind of formal training. All of my writing training comes from reading reading books. If a book is a bestseller, I tend to read it. And first I read it as a fan. Then I read it as an author and try to pick out why, you know, it it did as well as it did. And I try to incorporate those elements into my own writing. Um, But to have somebody like him on the other end of the phone call or the other end of the dinner table telling you what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong, um, that was huge. Um, and I mean, we had, we had a lot of fun. I mean, cause when, when we first sat down, he, he read fourth monkey, um, and you know, he gave me his review on it. Like that's how this, this first started. He called me up to give me his review. Um, and at first I thought it was one of my buddies just pranking me. Like I didn't realize that this was really James Patterson on the, on the phone. Um, but when I realized it was, we started talking, he invited me down to Florida and we, we decided we wanted to work together, but we had to figure out how, because he works with exclusively with outlines. And I've never done that. I've always been what they call a pantser. You know, I, I tend to come up with, you know, I create my characters first and I, I create a scenario and I drop those people into that scenario and I just kind of let them tell the story, um, you know, which in my world has worked. But that's, you know, in his world, it's the opposite of what you're supposed to do. He likes to plan out that whole story from start to finish and then you know sit down and write it. Um, so that was kind of a deal breaker for me because I had never written with an outline. He had never written without one. Um, so we kind of walked away from the project thinking, well, we're just probably not going to be able to work together. Um, but then we just decided to give it a go. He, he, he was willing to, to try and write a book without an outline. So the first one we wrote was called The Coast to Coast Murders. Um, that's the one that hit the New York Times list. Um, that book was done without an outline. You know, I would write a chapter, he would write a chapter, and, and we would one-up each other. Um, and to give you an example, there's a scene in there that is in like every, you know, serial killer thriller. You know, our, our, our good guy is sitting in a police interrogation room and he just got, you know, grilled by the cops. The cops leave him in there with his attorney and he's, he's talking to his attorney and then they finish up their conversation. Um, and it was a scene that had to happen because it communicates certain information that was pertinent to the story that we had to have in there. Um, so that's why it was there. Um, but I, I sent that over to him and he said, you know, this is, this is good, but you know, I'm going to make a couple changes and send it back to you. Um, so he sends it back to me and I'm reading this. And I'm like, holy crap, how am I supposed to? So basically what he did is at the end of this conversation, uh, our good guy is sitting there with his attorney. His attorney stands up in the interrogation room, knocks on the door. And when the cop opens the door to let them out, his attorney grabs the cop by the shirt collar, bangs his head against the wall, kills him, then turns to the client and says, okay, let's go. So like, that's where Patterson handed the book back to me. And then he said, okay, now you continue the story and try to come up with something better. So then I came up with the next chapter and threw a twist on it that was even crazier than that one. And I gave it back to him and said, hey, it's your turn. And we just we went back and forth like that and had a ball writing this, this book. Um, you know, but by the time we finished, a lot of words ended up on the cutting room floor, which is what he taught me. Um, you know, like it, it normally in, in the pantsy world, you know, like, um, yeah, I tend to overwrite. So there was one particular scene in that book that was a dinner scene. And again, it needed to be there because information was communicated, but it was like a page and a half long. And he, he shot it back to me. He's like, is there any reason we can't just say they had dinner? You know, three words, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so like I cut out this whole section. I replaced it with his three words and realized, you know, if I take another sentence or two and drop it somewhere else in the book, we're, we're fine. Like that's all that needed to be there. And that's kind of the magic of, of working with somebody like that. Like I would have put out that book with that chapter as is, you know, he, he turned it into something even better. Um, and, you know, so it became this learning experience for me. So we actually, we wrote a second book together that we uh, called The Noise um, that was done off of one of his outlines because he wanted me to try that process out. Um, and, and that one, it, it came out phenomenal. I mean, it's already sold for television. Um, the book doesn't even come out until August. Amazing. Um, yeah. So now we're, we're working on another one where he, he kind of handed, you know, he, he helped me put an outline together. So he kind of walked me through his outlining process to teach me how to do that. 
Um, so we'll see if I can get a book done without, you know, cutting 30 to 50,000 words out in order to, to trim it down. But um, either way, I mean, like I'm, I'm learning from all these different people. You know, every chance I get, I, I'm always, always learning. I don't think you can ever stop improving at this craft. Mm. And it's so interesting as well that you bring up um, sort of that exchange between between you guys. Because I was, I was wondering, I've, I've uh, collaborated on quite a few books. And uh, I was wondering how that process worked. And I've, I'm sort of halfway through Coast to Coast Murders at the minute. And I remember that scene specifically because I've, up to that point, I hadn't read any James Patterson books at all. Um, so I was really curious to see how that twist kind of threaded in with, with his spin. And the very, very short chapters, you definitely get those hooks at the end that just keep the page turning. And I can fully understand the formula of, of propelling the reader through that. And it definitely comes across that kind of um, just it's shock but not cheap shock because it's not just done to keep you reading it's very very um essential to the story to keep you going and it's something i, I very much enjoyed so far i've got a bit more to read yet oh, thank you very welcome um so how do you approach networking uh with other authors because like you say you've got this sort of roster of people that you've worked with all your life you've always been sort of around um people who are very very successful in their, their different areas and at one point as you say you, you reached out to Stephen King to ask permission to use some of his uh, intellectual property in one of your books how do you how would you advise people who are looking at sort of reaching out and just trying to work their way into the writing community to approach other writers um well in the instance of Stephen King we, we actually tried to go to his house um, <laughs> I tell you right now do not do that <laughs> Um, he, he lives, he lives on an Island down in Florida, um, right off the coast. It's called Casey key. Um, he's also got the house up in Maine, but for the most part, he spends his time down in Florida now. And, and it's like maybe 10 minutes from my parents' house. So we printed up the book. We hopped in the car. We figured, well, we'll go over to Steve's house. He'll probably be outside gardening or something. We'll hand off the manual. <laughs> He'll give us a thumbs up and we'll be on our way. Um, it, it didn't work out that way. Like you, you, you basically make, you get to this little island. If you make a left, you go to the public portion. So where the beaches are and the restaurants and the bars and stuff like that. And if you make a right, it's like the entire half of this island that he owns. Um, immediately, there's a private drive sign and a no trespassing sign and a gate and another gate. Uh, and we got maybe a half mile down this road. And, you know, I, I realized we're making a big mistake. Like I'm looking up in the trees, watching for snipers, thinking we're going to get shot. <laughs> um, so I actually reached out to a friend of mine, a guy named Jack Ketchum, um, whose real name was Dallas Mayor. He passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and I told him what we were up to. And I knew that he knew King really well. And he said, oh, yeah, don't stalk Steve. He hates that. Here's his email address. Just send him the book. If he likes it, you'll hear back. If the book sucks, you, you probably won't hear anything. Just leave him alone. Um, so I did that. And then that's where that whole exchange started. Um, now, to put this in context, the reason I even knew Jack or, or Dallas is because years back, and this is like maybe 1990 or 1991, um, there was a news or a, an email newsletter that used to go around um, uh, the horror something or other, but a, a woman named Paula used to put it out there. Um, and I used to get that. And, and, and in it at one point, she had put out a call to, for help. Um, Dallas had a bunch of books that he had written on an old Mac and he needed some way to get them onto a PC. And this was before all this stuff was compatible. I mean, this is the early 90s. So it was a really tricky thing to do. And, and I knew how to do it. So I reached out to him and I, and I helped him you know, move all these books that you know, were basically on floppy disks that were, you know, he had written off because he couldn't get to them. Um, and I helped him get them all to the point where he could get them on a, a PC and get them published. Um, so that was, you know, it's one of those pay it forward kind of things. Like I helped him out way back in the 90s. He helped me out with this and like, that neither of those things would have happened if, if we hadn't been you know looking out for each other um so i i tend to help out as many people as i possibly can because you never know when you know something is going to come back and, and help you out um, but those kind of things i think tend to, to come full circle um 
the one thing that I always keep in mind is, is you, you've got to ask the question. Uh, I, I know so many authors that they get into a scenario where they, you know, they'd like to see something like this happen, uh, but they don't actually pull the trigger on it. So to give you a good example, you might be at uh, Thriller Fest in New York at a conference. You know, Lee Child is there all the time. He's one of the founders of, of that organization. So you might hop in an elevator with Lee Child. You know, you've got maybe 15 seconds where you're, you know, able to talk to this person. Are you going to be the person who stands there quietly and says nothing? Or are you going to be the person that asks him a question and possibly gets a blurb out of him? You know, those doors open in 15 seconds, whether you do it or not. And in my mind, you know, the worst thing that can happen is that that person says no. You know, so what's the harm you know like you can either walk away and wonder what if again forever um or you can ask the question and if they shoot you down they shoot you down but at least you tried so i, I think no matter what you have to try mm. yeah i had a i can't remember where i picked it up from but my advice i had from someone was uh, if you don't ask the answer is always no and so i i use that a lot when going forward yeah exactly and it, you know it's tough i mean because these are usually things nobody wants to do but you know if you're the one person who does do them you know chances are you're going to get something done and that's why we're talking <laughs> just for listeners who want to, you're going to get flooded with people reaching out to you. Just come on the podcast. Um, let's go a little bit into sort of the realm of publishing as it stands at the minute, because we're in 2021, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, things have changed dramatically in the last 10 years with eBooks, with Kindle, with the different platforms, with just things getting um, progressively easier for people to publish. What are some of the, uh, biggest changes that you've seen that maybe aren't spoken about as much in, in the publishing world? Um, well, let's see if you, if you were to, well, I imagine you listen to like Mark Dawson's podcast, the self-publishing yes. formula. And I don't want to start plugging other podcasts. No, by all means. Yeah. One of the better ones out there. Um, so if you went into the, the conference room at Random House, you know, a couple of years ago and you brought up that particular podcast, most likely it would get you fired. You know, the fact that you were even listening to this is something that was taboo. You should never talk about it. Never, ever. You know, it just doesn't happen. Not not under their roof. Uh, if you were to walk into that same conference room today, I can guarantee there's at least one person who is tasked with doing nothing but listening to that podcast um, because the world is, is changing. And the pandemic, I think, has it's, it's caused a lot of things to move a lot faster than they probably would have. Um, yeah. And to give you an example, um, when you know things first hit back in uh, March or so of last year, when they started getting hairy, uh, I got a lot of phone calls from author friends that had books coming out, um, traditionally published mainly that, you know, they had book tours that were planned and, you know, they had conferences they were supposed to go to and, you know, nobody knew what was going to happen with all those things and things just started getting canceled. And they're like, how do I promote my book? You know, my book is coming out at the end of March. Like, what am I supposed to do? Um, that caught the big publishers off guard because, you know, they had relied on this particular model, you know, forever, you know, book tours, you know, going to conferences, just putting their authors in front of large groups of people. Um, that was always their, their priority and, and, you know, using those, those things to sell print books, you know, sell the hardcover, sell the paperback. Um, that was their model. So when this happened, you know, they, they had zero focus on ebooks. Um, ebooks was just always one of those things that, you know, it was great that it was there. It helped, you know, lessen the losses a little bit, but it wasn't a focus at all. I think they've completely shifted that. They've studied what indie authors are doing. They've, they've figured out what's working and what's not. And, you know, Facebook advertising, Amazon ads, all those fun things that indie authors have been doing forever. You know, they're looking at that and they're doing them now at, at extremely large numbers. Um, that they wouldn't have done before. I, I think they would have gotten to that point, but I think it would have probably taken like another four or five years before they actually did. So the pandemic just forced everything to, to move faster. Um, the bottom line is both the, the worlds are just converging. You know, that indie publishing used to be a very difficult thing to do. Then it got easier and it got easier. And, and now it's at the point where, you know, if it, it, almost anybody can pull the trigger on it. 
um, which is part of the problem. You know, there's there's so many books that are published. You know, there's a lot of noise out there. So one of the things I tend to tell people is make sure, you know, if you are going to do this, make sure your book is coming out on par with the stuff coming out of the big publishers. So follow the model that I had mentioned at the beginning of all this, you know, make sure it comes out in hardcover, audiobook, paperback, ebook, make sure you hire professional editors across the board. You know, nobody can self-edit. So don't think you can go through your own book and, and find the mistakes. You, you need people to look at those. I've, I've seen books coming out of the big publishers that still have typos in them after 10 different people have looked through them. Um, but, but hire the professionals. Like nobody should be able to pick up your book and and tell it apart from a book coming out of a, a top five publisher, you know, in the end, if you're doing it right. Um, so I tell people that all the time. Um, in my own world, I've, I've kind of changed my business model up a little bit because, you know, I, I've luckily done very well financially. Um, so I don't have to grasp that brass ring anymore. I've already got it. Um, so when I come out with a book, I, I, you know, I've like my last book, I'll give you an example. It comes out in February. It's called The Caller's Game. Um, I, I had an offer from a traditional publisher to put that out in, in the U.S. and I turned it down because it was a decent amount of money. It was a six figure deal. But, you know, I, I knew what I could make indie publishing that title. So what I've been doing for my last couple of books is a hybrid model. So I've retained rights, you know, the English rights for myself. So I put out the book through my own small press in the U.S., U.K. and in all the English speaking territories. But my agents um, go ahead and sell the foreign rights. So I've got traditional publishers in places like Romania and, and you know, France and Germany and Russia and all these other fun countries. Um, so I've got a mix of different things and I tend to hold back my audio rights as well. So we sell those separately. So like in this case, recorded books is putting that out. Um, that particular mix seems to work very well for me. Uh, as long as the book, you know, does well, like the, you know, the other publishers don't care. Like my last couple that I've, I've done this way, this is actually my third book that I've done with this particular model. They've hit the bestseller list in foreign countries, you know, so that's enough for those foreign publishers to go. They don't really care how it's being put out in the U.S. anymore. Um, from an economic standpoint, I'm making 70 cents on the dollar instead of the much smaller amount that I would make if, if I were to go through a, a traditional press. Um, so that's my current model, but that doesn't mean that that's not going to change, you know, another year or two, you know, everything may shift again. I don't know, but. I, I look at each book and I, I, I try to determine, you know, what is the best possible way to get this out, to get it in front of the largest audience, um, to, to basically, you know, lift my boat just a little bit more in the water. You know, anything that's going to raise my profile just a little bit, like those are things I consider. Um, and we'll, we'll see. I mean, but with the current one, that's that's the model that I've been following and it seems to be working very well. That's one of the things I love when when researching you and everything that you're doing and going on your website, seeing your branding, seeing even just how you were your book club and how people can sort of get art reviews and things from you. Everything comes across as just professional and as you would expect it from people in that top tier, understandably. Um, and like you say, the fact that that was one of the things that you paid attention to at the beginning seems very, very uh, relevant to a lot of the indie authors that I see now. Um, I think people like the idea of just putting their book on the shelf, but they don't think of the wider impact of what they could do and what even just presenting yourself in a certain way can give that image to the reader of that professionalism that, that carries you forward. Um, what would you say is your biggest piece of advice for someone who is currently working on their first book and looking to enter into the publishing arena now? Um, ultimately, it's, it's got to be a five-star read, I think, before it leaves your desk. Um, Stephen King and on writing, he says you've got um, a lifetime to write your first book and six months to write the next one. Um, and, and that's totally true in this environment, because once you get on that roller coaster, there's no getting off unless you want to be forgotten again. Um, but that first book, you can take your time on it and you need to. 
Um, I've, I've seen authors do this. Like, it, you know, like in my case, like before my agent even sees a book, it's gone through at least six different rewrites and, and numerous editors. Um, you know, whether it's my wife on a, on a first draft, she's going through and picking it apart to a, I've got a professional editor that, that runs through, you know, my final draft before an agent sees it. I want I, I don't want a single error to exist in those books. Um, for a lot of reasons, if you talk to an editor, you know, a couple of years back, they, they had time to take on a project. Like if they saw a story that they liked, but they felt that it needed work, you know, they were able to take that on. They hired people like me, you know, to fix those books. Um, but you know, the margins have gotten so slim that they can't do that anymore. They're, they're being worked to death. You know, editors, if they take on a book, they, they basically want the least amount of work as possible because they don't have the time to put into it. So if you can work out all those headaches and get the book as perfect as possible before it shows up on their desk, it's going to do a couple different things for you. They're, they're going to obviously see it as, you know, something that doesn't need a lot of work, which means that they can get it you know, to the market without having put a lot of time and effort behind it. Um, and it's going to garner you a much bigger deal because, you know, if if they're looking at it and they have to spend money in order to get it to a, a sellable product, that's money that's out of your pocket. Um, and, you know, if an editor is calling you and telling you that changes need to be made to your book, you know, it, it's, a, it's a tricky thing because, you know, like you've got so much control over that novel until it lands at that that stage. Like you can change anything in your own book that you want to until it ends up on an editor's desk. Then you've got other people's opinions in there. Um, and you're making changes based on other people's opinions. And that may or may not be what you want. Like, I, I personally would prefer to just, you know, perfect a book before it goes anywhere. So none of those changes even come up. Um, and, and I find that that works really well. Take your time on it. Hire professionals. Get it right the first time out of the gate. The, the last thing you want to do is, you know, and I hear this all the time. People tell me, well, if I can't get an agent or a traditional deal, I'm just going to indie publish it. Don't ever do that. <laughs> so that, that will do nothing but kill your career. Because uh, essentially what ends up happening is that person takes their book, they put it out on Amazon. It's available as an ebook in a, in a paperback through KDP, which means bookstores aren't going to buy it because they don't order from, from KDP. Um, you know, you, your friends and family are going to pick it up. So you're going to get those five or six glowing five-star reviews from these people that know you. And then all of a sudden, somebody who doesn't know you is going to stumble into it. And they're going to see the typos. They're going to see the problems. And they're going to give you that two-star review or the one-star review. And then the real reviews are going to start coming in. And, you know, ultimately that profile is who you are as an author. Everybody is going to look at that. So when you write your second book, they're going to look, go back and look at what happened with your first book. So, you know, if somebody clicks on a link for your second book and they see a two-star average on your first book, they're going to pass. And if, you know, same thing from the agents and publisher standpoint, if, if, you know, you try to get an agent with your second book and they load you up on Amazon or Barnes and Noble and they see this horribly reviewed novel, you know, that that's who you are to them. And that's, you know, those sales are who you are. That's the revenue you're going to generate if they pick up your novel and they're going to write you off too. your career is over. Um, so get that book perfect. It needs to be a five star read before anybody sees it or as close to it as you can get. Got one more main question before we hop into a couple of Patreon questions. It's a question that we ask all of our guests at the end of the main section, which is why do you, J.D. Barker, write? Oh, geez. Um, it, it's honestly something that I've always done. Um, yeah, I mentioned earlier that I grew up without a television in the house. So I was reading by the time I was three. Um, and we used to go to the library a couple of times a week. And I, I used to write little short stories and I would staple them together. And I had a library in my bedroom where my sister would come and check out stories. And, you know, I would charge her late fees when she didn't turn them in on time. But like, this is something <laughs> I've, I've been doing this forever, just making up stories. Like, this is my outlet, you know. So when I worked that corporate job and I wanted to pull my hair out and I hated everybody at the end of the day in my car ride home, you know, I went home and I wrote, you know, because that's, that's what made me feel better. So, you know, the fact that people are paying me for this is awesome. But, you know, if that stopped, 
stage tomorrow, it, it wouldn't make any difference. I, I wouldn't slow down. I, I, I absolutely love doing it. Love it. Okay, we're going to go into uh, a couple of Patreon questions now. So the first question is from Holly Line, and she says, for Dracul, did you visit Whitby in the UK and did you walk the steps? I didn't get to go to Whitby. Um, so I, that was a very surreal experience for me because I, I had access to all of Bram Stoker's notes. Um, and I also had access to Dacre Stoker, who is Bram's great-grandnephew, um, knows absolutely everything about the family, about the novel. Um, so when, when we wrote it, you know, like I, I had all these places and we, we focused primarily on Dublin because um, that's where Bram actually grew up um, in that area. But I, I wrote the book. Um, and then when the book sold, we ended up going over there you know, for me for the first time um, for the book tour. And it was a very surreal experience because these streets that I had gotten to know with gas lights and you know, horse-drawn carriages and all this, they still exist. Um, but you know, they're, they're, you know, like here's Bram's church. There might be a McDonald's next door. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it, it was weird seeing, you know, cause I'd always seen these places through Bram's eyes you know, because I, I saw, you know, his own personal notes on, on these places. So that was a very strange thing for me. Um, I wanted to go to Whitby. Unfortunately, the tour didn't take us there. Uh, I was supposed to go with Dacre a couple of years ago because he actually does tours and takes people to, to those places. Um, but you know, it just said things never lined up, but one of these days I, I hope to get out there. It looks like a beautiful place. Yeah, they do like a, uh, if if it's a place I'm thinking of, they do like a gothic festival celebration every year where they have all people in sort of very, very uh, fanciful costumes. And it's very, very, there's a lot of black. <laughs> there's, there's a lot, a lot of You know, those things have come around because like even in Dublin, um, you know, Bram Stoker was never really considered like one of their premier novelists. Like he was, you know, because horror was, you know, one of those things nobody, nobody told anybody they were reading. Um, they sort of pretended Bram didn't exist, you know, up until not, you know, recently, like maybe 20 years ago or so. Now all of a sudden there's a Bram Stoker day, you know, because they realized that they, yeah, so yeah. it's come around completely. But yeah, Whitby gets completely transformed when it, when it comes to that time. Um, yeah. And, you know, but Bram used to visit all the time. He loved it. The next question is from Faye Trask, who says, what are your opinions on the tropes and cliches that have come from the Dracula stories? Oh, boy. Um, well, <laughs> I think it's the other things that bother me more. Like vampires aren't supposed to sparkle. <laughs> you know, so when I mm-hmm. when I see stories mm-hmm. like that, it really bugs me. I mean, with Dracul, I mean, we, you know, Bram, he, he did his research. Like we actually found notes of his dating all the way back to when he was a teenager. He was already researching vampires. Um, which is crazy to think about because he didn't actually start writing Dracula until he was in his 40s. So this was a lifelong obsession for him. Um, But in his notes on vampires, he had the traits of vampires and he had a a very long list and he put this together from research that he had done in in various countries. He found vampire lore in in virtually every culture that he investigated, um, which is kind of cool to think about because before, you know, the time, you know, before we were all, you know, hopping on boats and getting in cars and all talking to each other, vampires existed from a lore standpoint. Um, so it kind of makes you wonder where some of these things came from. Um, but he had a, a very extensive list. And, and when we wrote Dracul, we stuck to the items that he had on his list. We wanted to bring vampires back to that. You know, they're not pretty humans. They're not, you know, not what they've turned into. They're, you know, they were monsters. And, you know, that, that's what we wanted to bring across. Beautiful. OK, we're in our final section now, which is the quickfire round. So what I have in front of me is 10 questions, our 10 questions that I'm going to ask you as quickly as possible. They're all okay. just fun. They're nothing too serious. And you just got to try and throw out an answer as quickly as you can. You can pass <laughs> at any point. Are you ready? All right. Is there a buzzer or something? Or <laughs> You can you can install a buzzer if you want to. Or I can just add the sound effect after. <laughs> Sounds like a game show. Go. Let's go. Uh, favorite all-time fiction monster? Oh, um... <laughs> 
<laughs> God, that that is tough. Um, I guess I would have to say Dracula at this point. What's your favorite fruit? Favorite fruit, banana. Preferred sandwich filling of choice? Uh, roast beef. Boats or planes? Uh, boats. Who was the last writer to make you cry? Oh, um, probably Dean Koontz with this. Nice. Uh, greatest film of all time? Oh, you're going to laugh. Um, my favorite is called Eddie and the Cruisers. Nice. Uh, what's your favorite kind of cheese? Cheddar. Do you have a dream holiday destination? Um, no, I, I've honestly I've been to every place I think I want to go to. Um, e- Egypt, I guess. I, that's probably one of the few I haven't been to yet. Nice. What one book have you recommended more than any other book? Um, again, this will probably seem silly, but Gerald's Game by Stephen King. Um, mm. Only because there's a, you know, the book takes place primarily within the character's mind. Uh, and there's a scene in there that's that's fairly long where he just describes a glass of water and you, you can't help but turn the page because it's so riveting. Like, I, I tend to point that out to the people that are working on their own novels just to, to check out, you know, how, how he did that. Amazing. Uh, and what's your favorite song? Uh, oh, boy. This is tough. This is harder than you might think. Um, it's just the on the spot, to... isn't it? Of just, okay. Yeah. Uh, welcome to the jungle. Guns N' Roses. Nice. One bonus question is where can my listeners find out everything about yourself and all that you are working on? Uh, that's easy. JDBarker.com. Beautiful. Smashed it. JD, thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's been a genuine pleasure just having some time to, to chat with you and pick your, your very, very, what's the word? Rich mind. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. No worries. And thank you everyone for listening and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Great Writers Shed podcast. Join us next week when Holly will be speaking to Michelle Robb. Don't forget you can get early access to every episode of the Great Writers Share podcast and the chance to ask upcoming guests any of your questions just by becoming a patron of the show. All you need to do is visit www.patreon.com forward slash greatwritersshare and support the show for as little as $1 a month. One more time, that's www.patreon.com forward slash greatwritersshare. Until next time.